Hi, welcome to a bonus episode of Murder Archives. I'm Emma Curtin. Today's episode is all about you and your theories about the death of Norma Rees McLeod. We split the episode into two parts as there were so many emails and comments to talk about, which is absolutely great. But we've released both parts at the same time, so you don't have to wait for part two if you want to binge now. First of all, thank you to everyone who listened and all those listeners who sent in their positive feedback, thoughts and theories, either via email or our newly created Murder Archives Facebook group. We wanted your input and you certainly answered the call. Feedback and theories are also still welcome, so uh, I'm not giving up on Norma yet. As far as I'm concerned, the case is still open. So you can email me at emma at murderarchives.com.au or leave a message on the Murder Archives Facebook page. If you want to know more about the investigation, all the details that we couldn't squeeze into eight episodes, you can buy the book in paperback or as an e-book from Amazon and other online bookstores. It's called Fractured Silence, The Mysterious Death of Norma Rees MacLeod. In this part one of the episode, we're going to talk about a few things you'll recognise. The underpants, the idea of incest, Norma's physical and mental health, the land in Heidelberg, as well as thoughts around pregnancy and Norma's sexuality. We're going to get some more input from our experts, some you've heard from before. And there was extensive fracturing of the skull. There was no laceration to the scalp, so I think it needs to be a relatively broad object. Plus some new contributors. But if there was that magic window between the two world wars where young women particularly got away with a hell of a lot. We'll also be talking to Norma's descendants who really appreciated the opportunity to share Norma's story with you. I'm chuffed that the podcast has had such an airing. This is a fascinating case and whether it's resolved or not, it's thought-provoking. It's local, it's history, it's family, it's, it's actual. Now, I'm assuming that if you've got to this point, you've already listened to all eight episodes of Fractured Silence. But if you haven't, we recommend you go back and have a listen to help make sense of the feedback we're going to talk about. For those of you who have listened but would like a reminder, here's a recap on what we know about Norma's life and death. To the police, the most likely suspect in this case was Norma's mother, Edith both because she found her daughter and because an anonymous letter writer, Asmodeus, wrote to police saying he'd heard two women arguing at the Mandeville Crescent House on the day of Norma's death. Edith's alibi, if you remember, was also questionable, with the shopkeepers unsure whether she'd been in their shops that day. Over the course of our investigation, we discovered a few things that raised questions about the likelihood of Edith as the killer. First, if you remember, a number of our experts questioned the authenticity of the Asmodeus letter. 
This then raised questions about his motivation for writing the letter and who he might have been. A family member? An acquaintance with a grudge? Or simply a malicious writer who took pleasure in incriminating others? More importantly, if the letter wasn't authentic, this begged the question about what evidence the police actually had for their case against Edith. Second, talking to her family members, it became more and more difficult to imagine Edith attacking a daughter to whom she was absolutely devoted, even to the point of being buried with her rather than her own husband. Third, the police seemed fixated on Edith with very little evidence and to the exclusion of all other suspects. Remember, Reese wasn't interviewed at all, Norman's alibi went unchecked, and another person of interest, the elusive poet Max Dunn, was very quickly dismissed. Max was a mysterious figure himself, and we conjectured whether he was Norma's love interest. Had he helped her buy that piece of land in Heidelberg, Victoria, in 1927? A purchase she kept secret from her parents. In episode 7, our expert forensic psychologist, Dr Karen Scally, was more sceptical of Dunn believing he had narcissistic tendencies. She suggested he could potentially be Asmataz and or Norma's killer. And what about our other suspects? We looked into the life of Norman and Reese, creating an image of these two men and their family relationships. We learnt that Norman was a fairly ineffectual man who'd failed to reach great heights in his career. Yet he could be manipulative and managed to create an image of upper middle class respectability based on a very small income and tight control of the purse strings and his family. We wondered whether Norman exerted too much control at home to compensate for his lack of authority in his outside life. Was he psychologically abusive, perhaps even physically or sexually abusive? And what about Norma's brother, Reese? We know he could be a bit wayward and impulsive. Remember, he'd been charged with a hit-and-run offence only months before Norma's death and was known to like drinking, partying and borrowing money. Was he a harmless individual or someone with the potential to kill? Did he know something or was he guilty? How had he managed to escape police attention? Did Norman, as suggested by letters from the public at the time, have friends in the Freemasons or in high places, as high as the Chief Secretary of Victoria, Sir Stanley Argyle? And what do we know about Norma that might have led to her death? For me, the idea of her growing independence and desire to escape was the key to the mystery. Was she trying to get away from the family or from a jilted lover? Perhaps that person just couldn't let her go. Norma had been working as a kindergarten teacher for just two terms. She'd joined the mission of St James and St John, focusing her attentions on unwed mothers and neglected children, had bought that piece of land and was beginning to enjoy golf, a game for the independent woman. Was it a coincidence that she was heading to the golf course on the day she died? Now we've reminded ourselves of Norma's story, there's just one more thing I want to share before we get into the theories in detail. 
This is something that happened the other day and I'm sharing it because it gave me hope that there still might be pieces of the Norma Jigsaw out there. I was having coffee with my friend June, a woman I've known for about eight years. During our chat, she started talking about her family. Knowing my passion for history, she pulled out some documents she thought I'd like to see. One of them was a beautifully written legal document relating to a mining venture that June's great-grandfather had entered into in 1865. There were four partners in the venture, and among them was a name I recognised, Abel Josiah Rees. This was Norma MacLeod's grandfather. To me, this was incredible. For the past four years, I've been speaking to my friend June about Norma. She's listened to the podcast and read the book, and now, after all this time, we've discovered this amazing connection. Now, I know this doesn't shed any light on Norma's death, but as I said, it just reminded me once again that there may still be some connections out there that have yet to come to light and get us closer to the truth. This was great motivation for me to not give up. Okay, let's get to your feedback. I've said before it was the underpants on Norma's head that initially drew me into the case, so that's where we're going to start now. Listeners Isabella, Chris, Anne and James thought the underpants weren't significant, pointing out that many people used to recycle old clothing, turning them into rags. James, for example, remembers his dad using old underpants to polish his car. That triggered a memory for me and I remember my mum cutting up old t-shirts and using them as polishing cloths, so it's certainly a reasonable argument. But these were all cotton. Reese's underpants were wool, which I still think would be very heavy when they were wet. But both Chris and Anne reiterated the fact that if Norman were tight with money, then maybe Edith made use of everything, including woolen underpants. Possibly. Perhaps Edith didn't give it a second thought or imagine that the use of the underpants as a compress would be misconstrued. What do you think? Listener Kerry wondered whether there was an old-fashioned jug and bowl on the dresser which would explain the use of the underpants. Perhaps they were grabbed from a drawer in that dresser. I know the McLeods had a bathroom, but it's certainly possible that they may also have had a jug and bowl of water in their bedrooms. I haven't been able to confirm this one way or another. Maybe someone out there might be able to help me. Other listeners, like me, were more convinced of the significance of the underpants, some pointing the finger at Reese, which we'll talk about in part two of the episode. Some raised the issue of incest, with either Norman or Reese as the perpetrator. Josie argued that maybe Edith knew of the incest and when she found Norma, deep down she thought Norman must have attacked his daughter and so she covered things up through shame. Others focused on the odd sleeping arrangements in the MacLeod house. You may remember that Norma and Reese shared a bedroom at the ages of 29 and 26 respectively. This seemed really odd to me and I'm not alone in thinking that. But other listeners provided alternative theories for why the siblings may have shared a room. These related to Norma possibly having health issues. Retired nurse Isabella wondered whether Norma had epilepsy, which was highly stigmatised at the time. 
This, she thought, might explain, A, why Norma wasn't married at 29, which we'll touch on a little bit more later, and B, why Reese might have shared a room with her to protect her. Some of you may remember that in the inquest, the only comment that the family doctor made about Norma's general health was that she had, quote, a slight lip trouble. While we don't know exactly what that meant, it could have been as simple as cold sores, but perhaps this was a symptom of a more deep-seated issue. Some temporal lobe seizures, argued Isabella, can manifest in repetitive lip smacking, as well as other symptoms such as a sense of detachment and hallucinations. Thinking about this, I leapt to questioning whether perhaps this was the connection between Norma and Max Dunn, who we know did suffer from absence seizures. But again, we've got no proof to say one way or the other. I tried very early on to find any medical records for Norma and the family, but doctor's records no longer exist from that period. Another thought that came to mind when I discussed the idea of epilepsy with Norma's family was the possibility that Norma's father's own health problems could have been related to seizures. Epilepsy is known to run in families. If you remember from episode 5, we talked about Norman MacLeod's weak constitution and the fact that he'd contracted rheumatic fever at some point in his life. Some severe symptoms of rheumatic fever include convulsions. Could Norman have been misdiagnosed? Again, it's a stretch, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. Anyway, following on from the idea of epilepsy, Isabella also conjectured whether Norma could have been looking under the bed and hit her head on the metal frame during a fit. And, she argued, if Norma had died this way, her parents might have wished to cover this up because of the way epilepsy was perceived at the time. Now, I know that some epileptic fits can be quite violent, but was this possible? I asked our friend and forensic pathology expert, Dr Byron Collins, for his thoughts. I think it's highly unlikely that such an extensive head injury would have occurred from either falling and hitting her head on the ground when she fell or possibly even under the bed if she were having a a grand mal fit. I don't think the severity of the skull fracture, which involved almost from above the eye on the right side, travelling backwards to end at the back of the head with some other fractures right in the vertical vertex region, would have resulted from any sort of fall or uh, hitting the head uh, under the bed. In my view, that scenario is out. Just in relation to epilepsy, I know there's been no history given in any of the materials that have been provided um, and it may well have been hidden away if she did have it, but it's not uncommon for some of the anti-epileptic drugs to produce enlargement of the gums called hypertrophy of the gums. This condition is easily recognisable and it certainly wasn't described by Dr Mollison. I did wonder too if she was epileptic, whether she would have been able to hold down a job. If there was such a stigma, you know, the possibility of her working and having a fit, I'm sure would have been something they tried to avoid. Yes, I would have thought so because if she were having grand mal fits, unless she had them very infrequently and fortuitously when she was alone, then it would be a condition that would be very difficult to hide. On the other hand, if they were petty mal fits, such as 
uh, mild facial grimacing or perhaps a, um, a fluttering of the hands or something like that, then that could be easily hidden. But then if it were that type of epilepsy, in other words, a mild epilepsy, then the theory of the, in- the head injury being produced during some sort of epileptic seizure um, even goes further out the window. One final suggestion from retired nurse Isabella, again related to the lip trouble. She noted there was a condition called tardive dyskinesia, which is a side effect of antipsychotic drugs, sometimes resulting in lip spasming. Now this is an interesting theory, although antipsychotic drugs were not readily available until the 1960s. But could Norma have been taking something else? You may remember in episode 4, I mentioned that one of Norma's relatives grew up believing that Norma had overdosed, although the original pathologist report didn't indicate this. This same relative, who was only a young girl when Norma died, insisted that she was told Norma had access to, quote, a powerful drug which was off the radar as far as the doctor was concerned. Could Norma have been taking something for a medical condition, or maybe depression, or what in those days would have been called neurasthenia? Remember, those who would have been severely depressed would have been institutionalised. A quick look through the National Library's newspaper archive showed that in 1929, neurasthenia was treated with things like cold baths and laxatives, as well as quack medicines like Dr William's pink pills, which were really something like a combination of iron supplements and Epsom salts. Obviously, these don't have the same properties as antipsychotic drugs. Many listeners focused on Norma's death in relation to secrets. For example, Michelle and Anne commented on one of the anonymous letters that we read out in episode 3. No anonymous letters necessary over McLeod affair. Mother and daughter hated each other. All men who visited the house were cultured. Four people know the McLeod secret. Why not tell the public that Norma Mick was a walking skeleton? Mother plus son plus hatred. For them, the reference to the skeleton could relate less to Norma's physical frame and more to the skeletons in her closet. So what was she hiding? Listeners focused on secrets relating to Norma's parentage, her land in Heidelberg, possible pregnancy and her sexuality. So let's deal with each of those. Questions were raised about Norma's parentage. For example, Chelsea suggested that maybe Norman wasn't Norma's father. If this were true, had he only just discovered this fact and lashed out? What do you think of that theory? Personally, I'm not sure Edith would have been unfaithful to Norman. After all, she'd married him two years before having Norma, ruling out the idea that she married him just to hide the fact that she was pregnant. I also wondered whether a woman of apparent religious and moral conscience could have cheated on her husband two years into their marriage. A few listeners wondered whether Norma might have been pregnant at some stage, and you may remember I explored this idea in episode 4. Cathy wondered whether Norma had become pregnant to Max Dunn, and they were planning to run away together. A pregnancy hadn't been reported in Dr Mollison's autopsy report, but that doesn't mean to say there wasn't one. To use that great phrase, absence of evidence doesn't mean evidence of absence. Or, thought Cathy, perhaps Norma had lost a child and thought of building some sort of home for unwed mothers on her block of land, 
to compensate for her loss. On this same theme, listener Mel wondered if Norma's church could have been involved with the land purchase, perhaps to develop an orphanage or something church-related. To be honest, I haven't had much luck in actually tracking down Norma's church attendance. While the mission she joined was related to the Anglican church, her mother was a Congregationalist and her father was a Presbyterian. And Norma's funeral service was also performed by a reverend from the Armadale Presbyterian Church. Perhaps this is another avenue I need to explore more intensively. A number of listeners focused on the fact that Norma was 29 and unmarried, which seemed quite unusual for the time. Libby wondered whether this was simply because she'd witnessed her parents' own unhappy marriage. That's certainly possible. A number of other listeners wondered whether Norma was gay. While we don't have much to go on, other than Norma being unmarried, it's another possible theory that might explain the secrecy that surrounded her death, especially when we put this in context. Although sadly prejudice against the gay community still exists, we've certainly come a long way since the 1920s. Historians argue that at this time in Australia, same-sex relationships with women were either not even considered with the Victorian belief that women were not sexual creatures, or, if they were considered, women who loved women were seen as deviant or unnatural. So for many women, this was certainly not a time to publicly display their sexual preferences. But it was also a difficult time to remain single beyond a certain age, regardless of your sexual preferences. And we can all summon up images of spinster aunts and the prejudices that often come with that label. Many unmarried women became the targets of hostility. To make this point, I want to tell you the story of Alice Anderson, the first woman to run her own garage in Australia. Alice was born three years before Norma and ran her garage in the Melbourne suburb of Kew, about eight kilometres from Toorak. Alice was born into a wealthy family, but her father, Joshua, wasn't good with money. This meant the family moved from Melbourne to the country and this is where Alice developed a number of hands-on skills. The Kew garage was built to Alice's design in 1919 but nobody knows where she got the money from to develop it. Sound familiar? Remember, we still don't know where Norma got the money for her land. Historian and writer Loretta Smith has launched a book on Alice called A Spanner in the Works published by Hatchet Australia. And she still can't find Alice's money trail. But how did Alice have the money to buy the garage? Where did she get that from? Where you don't know. It's a mystery. Her father agreed to underwrite her and the banks took one look at him and said, no way, Jose, you're not going to underwrite this. He wasn't a good bet. And so after that, Alice decided she was not going to involve any family at all and she made a private arrangement that we will never know. There were some guesses, but we will never actually know. But even though she knew some wealthy women... So you think they helped Alice? Look, they may well have, but I, I was absolutely horrified when I did the research. Up until the 1980s, a woman had to have a man underwrite yeah, a life. a husband or a father, I know. So there was someone, a male, supported Alice to get that first loan. Like Norma, Alice was unmarried. According to Alice's biographer, there were many rumours that Alice was gay, with most of these rumours apparently started by competing garage owners. 
Sadly, like Norma, Alice's life ended tragically at the age of 29. It was September 1926 and Alice died in the back of her garage of a gunshot wound to the head. Gossip surrounded her death as it had her life. And while an inquest ruled a verdict of accidental death while cleaning her gun, rumours circulated that she'd killed herself under the pressure of continued innuendo about her sexuality. Both Alice and Norma had so much to offer. Alice as a visible role model for other women and Norma as a woman committed to public good through charitable works and striking out for an independent life. So while we might argue that life as an independent unmarried woman in 1929 could lead to suicide in the face of public prejudices, could it have led to murder? I spoke to Loretta Smith about her research into Alice Anderson and about life for independent women in the 1920s. So I'm really interested to know what you gathered about what life was like if you were an unmarried woman, regardless of your sexuality. Yes, well, there were a lot of single women because, uh, you know, so many of the men were destroyed in the war. They either didn't come home or if they did, they were terribly damaged. You know, there were a lot of um, sisters that lived together and never got married. There were lots of spinsters that, you know, were just companions that lived together. So how many of them were lesbian couples, we will never know. But there was that magic window between the two world wars where young women particularly got away with a hell of a lot. All that fun stuff that everyone wanted to forget about the drudgery of the war and suddenly there was money and there were opportunities that that women had never had before. Some listeners also questioned the relationship between Norma and her cousin Edith Williams. Remember it was Edith who Norma was planning to play golf with on the day she died. Edith was also unmarried. In fact, she remained unmarried for the rest of her life, dying at the age of 86. Did they share a secret as gay women? Again, this is pure conjecture based on their single status, which is perhaps a bit of a stretch. But can we dismiss it? To me, it seems more likely that Norma and Edith were simply two young women looking to take charge of their own lives, perhaps rejecting the choices their mothers had made. Here's what some of Norma's relatives said about the listener comments and their feelings about the investigation so far. The conversation I had with Elaine and Ben was recorded in Elaine's kitchen, which is why it sometimes sounds a little bit echoey. You also might be able to hear the occasional clanging, and this is Elaine's bangle. And I mention this because for me this was a lovely connection to Norma's mother, Edith, as Elaine explains. I don't wear them because it's Edith. I wear them because I like them. And it's a connection with her. She wore them because she liked wearing them. But that's what I remember as a child, the jangle of the bangles. So what are your thoughts on the underpants? It really points to the fact that underpants at that time could very commonly be used for multiple purposes. Yeah, woolen. Well, they were woolen. But I mean, your grandfather, mm. so your father, mm. Elaine, mm. on the other side of the family, mm. used underpants to polish his lawn bowls. Yes, and even Dad used to use them before really good polishing cloths became affordable. Um, well, you never bought polishing cloths. I don't think they're significant. I think they were grabbed and wet as a, an urgent measure rather than 
cold decisiveness about what shall I get to, it's too much it's too much emotion in that moment mm. for it to be so structured I think yes I agree the underpants would have been in that room and they would have been on hand I think it's probably significant that they were folded neatly rather than just rinsed and wrung and stuck on your head I think that that's something methodical I don't see a man doing that so you think that would have been Edith and not really thinking about the fact that the underpants might be misconstrued? No, I don't think that would have occurred to her at all, if, if it was her. But I think that it's interesting that they weren't just rung and flung on her head like someone in a hurry. So we've got listeners talking about A, you know, we've talked about before about incest, and then this idea that maybe she was unwell. What do you think about that? I can't get my head around any incestuousness. I just think if she had a mental problem or she had a health problem, because, um, you know, like my family said, that she was delicate, so I don't know what that meant and whether the care was, if she did have some sort of seizure or fit, that someone was on hand, mm. if that had happened at night, because it can happen at any time, of course. Yeah, yeah it can be quite frightening. Mm. But that's what I think. What about you, Ben? I think the uh, the idea of the epilepsy is interesting and the sharing the room. Obviously the house was designed with only two sufficient bedrooms. Yeah. Um, and it may have been assumed for a long period of time that they would always share or that they ended up staying longer than they expected at home for whatever reason. And then we go into the idea of her being single why was she single was she gay it wasn't unusual for girls to end up as maiden ladies into their you know older age rather than go off and be sexually active and free and all the rest of it and this was a very straight-laced family that she came from so i don't see that um the secrets within the family they certainly were um they didn't share their private lives really but um I'm sure something would have come through family besides what the little we did learn. What do you mean in terms of whether she was had had a baby or whether she yeah, was gay? Yeah, I, I think you know there would have been they they well it was never talked about homosexuality and certainly not on the part of women. Mm. And yet you know we'd had all the Virginia Woolf stuff coming through and this is a literary family. Yeah, um, but it wasn't mentioned because they were very churchified as well mm. so if it was it would have been a very deep dark secret and sinister and i don't feel that maybe they just didn't want to mm. do what the mothers had done mm. and there's probably in the history there was probably the opportunity not to do that as opposed to prior to that where it would have been you would have been setting yourself up for you know a life of poverty if you didn't marry and there was an opportunity now that you could work and support yourself independently which i think would be a result of them seeing unhappy marriages between their parents and... But now they had a choice. I mm. think there's something in all that. Perhaps she was strong-minded enough to see around her a chance to live a freer life and not be governed and ruled by the conventions of the time, mm. society, what was acceptable. I don't know. So I guess that the land is a big part of that and the land is still a real mm. sticking point for me because I think, well... Well, we haven't got to the bottom of it, have no. we? where she got the money from. And, and talking to you today, Ben, about cousin Edith being an accountant. She might have been the closest in the family. To well, she, I think she was in age 
Well, you so maybe she was that. a role. Maybe she was a role model for Norma. And I believe she would have, you know, their household with it, with the father gone would have been a bit of a haven for Norma. Would have been a safe place, you know, with Jock being, you know, quite liberal as well, and having Trixie and and the three girls there would have been probably where she really felt at home. Well, because they were career women, really. Mm. But it's quite interesting, isn't it, that Edith was in Newburgh as an accountant. Is that a bookkeeper? Did she sit at her desk like... um, An ambitious bookkeeper, probably. She was a bookkeeper. So she must have been a bit of a smart cookie to keep her eye on what was going on around her. Yeah. I was just going to say what we were saying about whether she loaned Norma the money for Mm. the land, possibly. Or advised her what to do with... How to get it. So, yeah, maybe Edith is another one to look into a bit more in, in terms of her... Well, we, we needed really to know how close they were. And if they did share confidences... I think it's interesting that Edith was named after Norma's mother and that's how close the sisters were. So that in that leads me to think there must have been more confidences shared between the two mothers mm. and the two cousins that we don't know about. Well, this is where we've got to so far... What are your thoughts? Don't forget you can still contact me via emma at murderarchives.com.au or via the Murder Archives Facebook page. In part two of our bonus feedback episode, we'll talk about the suspects themselves, as well as Asmodeus, and present some more evidence that Norman did indeed have friends in high places. We'll also talk about your thoughts on the weapon and whether Norma could have walked after being attacked. If you haven't yet, please leave a review or, even better, tell a friend about the show. And if you're ready for the second instalment of the bonus episode, it's out now in your podcast feed.